It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. It's Fixed Shorts with Richard and Jim. Solutions podcast in 15 minutes or less. Okay, so Jim, what have we learned in a hundred episodes? That's the title of this one. Right. Well, I've learned, Richard, that I agree with you on everything. <laughs> no chance of that, Jim. Well, but as the squishy libertarian of the team, I'm supposed to be the reasonable one. Yeah, well, you're getting less squishy by the day. <laughs> now I think Donald Trump has, has brought us together more than we otherwise would have been. I, I think that we agree that we need practical, positive solutions, rather than just tearing stuff down and complaining about things. Right, right. But we also need constant challenging of the conventional wisdom, getting us all outside of our filter bubbles. Or getting us into our discomfort zones. One of the shows that was a real eye-opener for me was our show with David McRaney, who is a wonderful writer on psychology and confirmation bias. And it was an eye-opener because I thought I knew a lot about it. I thought I really uh, understood confirmation bias. And his examples, his way of approaching the topic was so fresh, and it made me recognize my own confirmation bias. On uh, I'd love to plumb you deeper on that and find out what your confirmation biases are. But David hosts the podcast, You Are Not So Smart. He says people usually try to confirm their assumptions, rarely ever do they challenge their ideas with an opposing hypothesis. For instance, there was a study done by Valdis Krebs. What he did is he examined purchasing trends on Amazon during the 2008 election, and he found that people who already supported Obama were the people who all the books that they bought about the electoral process were books that painted Obama in a positive light. And the people who disliked Obama only bought books that painted him in a negative light. And so they were focusing on one type of information because that was the information that played nice with their pre-existing attitudes. But according to this research and lots of other research when it comes to confirmation bias is that people don't seek out information from the news. They tend to seek out confirmation from the news. And if you, all you have to do is look at anyone's Facebook feed and as they're sharing stuff with you over and over again, it's always things that sort of confirm their worldview and try to also solidify the fact that we're cool, right? Of all the things I write about, and I've written you know, two books about this, this is the foundational bias. This is the thing from which everything else springs because it's, it is simply the natural default way 
that human brains try to make sense of the world. So the lesson is just because we know confirmation bias is there doesn't mean we're immune to it. Yeah. And Jim, one of the reasons why I wanted to do a podcast with you was because of the work you did when you were at Popular Mechanics on debunking the 9-11 conspiracy theories. Right. This was something we did at Popular Mechanics all the way back in... 2005, right. when these theories were really first gaining some traction. And what was so fascinating was how powerfully people believed it, but also if you went to those websites, they were so perfectly optimized to feed you all the information which made the conspiracy theories make sense and filter out the vast, much greater mountain of evidence that showed that the conventional viewpoint was actually true. Among the most interesting guests we've had on How Do We Fix It over these first 100 episodes have been scientists, especially for me as a non-scientist. Anissa Ramirez, Michael Schellenberger, and the founding publisher of Skeptic magazine, Michael Shermer. On episode 80, we learned some new things from Michael about why so many of us have negative views of the world, even when the facts can be pretty positive. You know, Donald Trump has talked in such dark, kind of apocalyptic terms. I often notice that a lot of his points, they were almost dated from the 80s. Japan is taking our jobs. Japan? Right. Really? You know, <laughs> illegal immigration was flooding the country when, in fact, it had fallen. Right. He had a grain of truth about crime bumping back up in some areas, but he totally exaggerated it. And yet, you see how his fans, his audience, they really resonated with this angry, negative, dark worldview. Michael Shermer talks about why so many people have a dark worldview. But the problem is our brains are, are wired to focus on negatives um, because the world is a dangerous place. And the world we evolved in, there are so many more ways that things could go south fast that would take you out of the gene pool than that things could get better, uh, which you don't really notice. And bad is stronger than good. That's the title of a paper by Roy Baumeister, a psychologist. And he documents that across almost every domain you can think of, uh, bad triumphs over good. For example, we have more words to describe pain than we have to describe pleasure. And, you know, we're more focused on negative things that happen in our environment. And it, just think of like the weather. You know, we notice big catastrophic things like storms and earthquakes and hurricanes. But, you know, a thousand year trend toward global warming is really unnoticeable and it's hard to get people to care about it. And uh, because why? Why would I care? I mean, our, our minds evolved, you know, the savannas of Africa when, you know, next week is what counts, uh, not, you know, 100 years from now or you know, rising sea levels, whatever, dude. I'm worried about dinner tonight. So that was certainly a, a new thought for me from Michael Shermer that bad is more powerful than good in, in our minds. I also learned from him more about the scientific method, and I really didn't know this, that scientists in the lab, unlike the rest of us, work actively to disprove a hypothesis before arriving at a conclusion. Right. I just love, I love that about the scientific method. I think it's also something that journalists should do, you know, and that all of us should do as citizens. If we're so comfortable in that bubble, getting all this information that confirms our viewpoint, it's time to step outside. Obviously, a big theme of, of our show. One person who pushed me a little bit out of my <laughs> comfort bubble in a good way was Farai Jadea, 
author of The Episodic Career. It's a really good book about jobs at a time of disruption when so many people are not in traditional career paths but doing freelance work. And Farai talks about the importance of resilience and being an investigator in your own career, keeping up to date on trends and changes in skills, for instance. She's a former NPR host, professor, journalist, and author. And Farai had a number of careers and talks candidly in our interview about making new contacts when looking for a job in a new field. Yeah, I was really kind of hardcore about it when I was looking for a new job. And and it wasn't just a new job. I knew I wanted a new direction. I contacted three people a day every day for a few weeks and got a a lead on a faculty job. And um, I knew that I had this grab bag of skills and I wanted to see where they could be applied. So I was in some ways relying on the judgment of others to reflect back to me who I could be. Yeah. That's neat. I never thought of it that way. No, it's really useful. But no matter how well you manage this work-life balance, still sometimes bad stuff happens. Oh, and, all the time. And um, <laughs> you talk a lot about resilience. You say, yes. or, you know, do you snap or do you snap back? Yes. Oh, can this be learned? Absolutely. Resilience can be learned. I mean, just as helplessness can be learned. There's all of these interesting cognitive behavioral and neuroscience studies, but resilience can be learned. And, and people have different ways of doing it, but one way is to just... Consider your inner talk. A lot of times people's inner talk will say, I failed, I failed, I failed. And maybe you focus on, I learned. I learned that I don't have the skills to do this and I'd like to do it better, so I'm going to study. So isn't it great that I know this and I'm going to move on? But basically the, the resilience comes from this fundamental optimism that you have a place in the world, that something is there's something that you're meant to do. Yeah, that's great. And maybe it's not what you're doing now and that's okay. For I, Judea, talking about the episodic career. Richard, I love it when we're ahead of the curve. Yeah, and we have been, haven't we? Sometimes, I mean, like, for instance, on filter bubbles. Right. You know, we were talking about in some of our early shows and this issue of of social media filtering the information we get about people retreating into their kind of colonies of like-minded people. Since we got on this topic, it's become a major issue in our society. And even Mark Zuckerberg now is talking about radically changing Facebook to address some of these concerns. Another example, Megan McArdle of Bloomberg, a columnist at Bloomberg View, who spoke about the problems of fixing health care months before last year's election and way before the Republicans, who now run Congress, realized how difficult it would be to undo Obamacare. <laughs> or the president, who was really surprised to discover that health care is complicated. <laughs> if he'd listened to our podcast, he would have known that. And then weeks before the Brexit vote in Britain, Steve Hilton came on. Yeah, this one I thought was really a revelation. Because like most people, I was very dubious about the Brexit vote. And I had mostly seen it presented as kind of a closed-minded, anti-immigrant type of bias. And then Steve came on and showed a very different perspective. Yeah, he was the former personal advisor to David Cameron, one of the leaders in Britain last year of the Brexit campaign. Now, I don't agree with him, and I think Brexit was a mistake, but Steve makes a very strong point about how Europe, and the European Union especially, has changed in recent decades. The name kept changing. When I first became aware of it, it was called the EEC, the European Economic Community. It then became the EC, the European Community. And now it's the European Union. And that story tells you something about how it's evolved. What's happened is that 
in the, the core concept that the that certainly the British bought into and that I completely support a common market or you can call it a single market that was what it was known as where there's a, an ability for companies to trade across borders that's something that's that's great but in the name of achieving a single market the central bureaucracy of the European Union has grabbed more and more power in the name of what they describe as harmonization. They say, if you're going to have a single market, which includes the free movement of people from one country to another, then we have to have common rules for employment policy. Then we have to have the same rules for business regulation and environmental regulation. So Italy regulation needs so the same uh, worker safety rules as exactly. Sweden. So this is the way to think about this. I now run a business in California, and one of the things that, that we benefit from there, and it's part of the culture of of, of enterprise and, and great economic success there, are the employment policies. The employment policies of California are very different to those in other parts of the U.S. Imagine that the employment policies in California were determined not just by the federal government in Washington, but by a group of countries, including Bolivia and Venezuela and Suriname, that applied throughout North and South America, with no possibility for the US, let alone California, to actually countermand a majority vote from the rest of those countries. What's fascinating here is that the story we were hearing about Brexit, which was one of closed-minded voters, was actually a much deeper and more interesting story about mission creep. Yeah. For what began as a really sensible free trade pact had evolved into something that was really eroding the national sovereignty of the countries involved. Also, Jim, I have to say I've learned from you I've become a thorough convert to that phrase you've repeated several times. Some listeners would say ad nauseam when you say we romanticize the past and catastrophize the present. <laughs> and, and another thing I've learned from you is, is something that I don't think I took on board until fairly recently, the importance of free speech on college campuses. We've just had these recent examples, um, both at Berkeley and at Middlebury, of left-wing students behaving disgracefully with uh, conservative speakers. And uh, this was something that we, we spoke about last year with... Greg Lukianoff. Yeah, from FIRE, uh, which is the organization that defends free speech on college campuses. Again, this is an issue that I think it's easy to be complacent about. It's easy to think like, oh, yeah, college kids are always complaining. Yeah. And, and, and I went to a really left-wing uh, college in the 70s. Yeah, and, and, and it's, it's very easy to say, oh, it was like that when I was in college. Yeah. It has taken a very distinct turn for the worse. And one of the things that's particularly alarming is that in some of these campuses, the administrators are not defending free speech. Speaking of shutting down, one of the things I've learned while doing this show is to keep the shows as brief as possible. And as this is an edition of Fix It Shorts, we have to leave it there. I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And our producers, Miranda Schaefer. Thanks as always to Miranda. And the music is by Lou Stravinsky. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back in the next show. If all goes to plan, Neil deGrasse Tyson, another scientist. 
Let's get this dinner party started. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.